being exposed to the narrative therapy model was like, this is how it's meant to be. Jesus was a narrative therapist. He listened to stories and he asked questions and he didn't assume and he mixed with the marginalized of the time and he challenged social injustice and discourse. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Nicole Dixon heads up the Institute for Creative Conversation, which explores ways to weave narrative practices and pastoral theology into a meaningful narrative of care. Nikki worked at Northfield Methodist Church for 15 years and has over 20 years' experience in counseling, workshops, and training. She's currently undertaking a PhD in family pastoral therapy. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Nikki, thank you very much for coming in and for being willing to do this podcast. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, your family, mm. where you come from. I was born in Oxford in England, and I'm the oldest of three girls. My family moved to South Africa for a better future. I'm the only one left in South Africa. I choose to be in South Africa. And I've been married to Graham for it'll be 29 years this year. We have two children Courtney and Luke, and they're both sort of grown up and entering the world on their own terms now. Out the house. Out the house. <laughs> and your hobbies? What are mm. you interested in? Mm. I love photography. I think if I was younger now, I would be a photojournalist and travel the world telling stories through photos. So I love photography, scrapbooking, journaling. I have a huge interest in books. I think that's a gift that my mom and dad gave us as children to read a lot. So that passion has grown. And I enjoy yoga. I'm a big yoga follower and a bit of exercise when there's time. Great. You spoke there about photography and telling stories. And in a way, that's what this Institute for Creative Conversations does. It's about mm. stories. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your work there and what you do. Mm. So essentially, we offer narrative therapy, and we offer it in different forms. We offer training, mm -hmm. and we offer conversation as well. And the basis of narrative therapy is exactly that, that our lives are multi-storied, and the gift is having people trained to really listen well and to ask some meaningful questions. So that really underpins the essence of the work that we do at the Institute. Do you work with individuals or with groups? Both. So we do pastoral conversations one-on-one -on -one using pastoral therapy, narrative therapy. We work in groups, so group conversations, but also in groups in terms of training. And then on the other side of what we offer is what we call sacred spaces, so quiet days, mornings of retreat, sometimes weekend retreats as well. So let's just unpack a little bit. When we talk about narrative therapy, hmm. what are we actually doing? I mean, what are you asking people to do? I think many people will be familiar with therapy where you go in and you see somebody hmm. and you talk about the issues in your life and so hmm. forth. What makes this different? I think essentially it's different from other forms of therapy because we really center the person who comes to see us. So it's in no way advice giving, fixing, wanting to tell people what to do. It really does believe that everybody has their own story to tell and that essentially even if there's a problem situation, that inside of everyone resides the inner resources and abilities and knowledges to overcome those problems. So you're not offering people some sort of skill from outside, but you're saying inside of you, mm. there is something yes. that can help you to face whatever challenge yes. you have in your life. Yeah. That's very interesting. There seems to be 
in the world today a real sense of, for many young people, the value is outside. It's what you get outside. Mm, mm. And do you think that there is an opening for this kind of therapy because of what's happening in society, mm. how society is impacting on people? Mm. I think narrative therapy is a postmodern paradigm mm -hmm. way of being. And so essentially, it's not only about my own story, but it's also being aware of how the world influences my story and how the world influences sometimes my behavior or what I aspire to be. Mm. And so kind of the whole idea of we are socially constructed, we don't exist in isolation. Our family has an impact on who we are, the world around us. So very much see that as possibly an invitation to highlight or to become aware of the strong influence of the world on who we are. Mm. It's born out of a kind of faith context, is it? This Institute for Creative Conversations? What's yes. the link with faith? So essentially, the Institute was born out of a ministry um, mm. within a local context of a Methodist church. Mm. And it's one that Trevor Hudson was very instrumental in initiating. Mm. But then the more that we did conversations with people and outsiders referred people to us, there was a sense of others wanting to know how we did what we were doing, which was essentially taking pastoral care and weaving it in with narrative therapy so that it was really sound and not, not as judgmental or as directive as some other biblical ways of counseling are. And so the more people started coming from outside and saying, teach us how to do what you do, Trevor and myself, there was a sense that the time was right. There was a need to offer training to others in mm. how we were working in a way that was meaningful to people and creating the element of hope. So it can work within a faith context, but yes. for people perhaps who find themselves in a space where they don't have necessarily an allegiance to any faith, mm. this kind of therapy would still work for them. Yes, it would. So the element of faith would really come in in a relationship with God, the relationship with Jesus, would be one of the key relationships in a person's life. So if people didn't feel that there was that relationship, there are still other relationships that need to be spoken about and explored perhaps. So when people come and they are from a faith context, relationship with God, with Jesus, becomes one of our lines of inquiry, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if I could say. Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of relationship do you have with Jesus? What kind of image of God do you have? And how long have you had it? And where did it come from? Those would then form some key areas of exploration. Mm. How long does a journey like this take? So if someone comes to you and says, I want to talk about whatever it is, I want to explore the narrative of my own life, mm. do you have a kind of set time or does it sort of just roll until the person feels yes. that they've found the inner resources? Yes. Or? So it could be a one-off session where somebody kind of recognizes something or the converse of that is, is not willing to go on that journey at that time. And then there are others that will see us for a period of time. They may come back frequently just for check-ins. There's not a formula. Hmm. Sometimes people seek out something when they really need it. There's been a trauma in their hmm. lives. Maybe someone's died or something has happened or there's an illness or whatever the case is. And they will then be attracted to exploring something like this. Do mm. you find that or do you mm. find people who are just dealing with the challenges of life tend to come along? I think both. I think the one thing that modern society does not do well is listen. Mm. Many is a time when somebody just needs to bounce an idea or a thought off of somebody and they need somebody who's neutral and has the time to actually sit and listen and perhaps ask some meaningful questions. 
in order for them to move to a place of decision-making or exploring other alternatives. Mm. So it can be around a trauma story or an overwhelming problem. We talk of problem-saturated stories, Mm. or it might just be needing to chat to somebody. Mm. There's always that fine line, I think, in pastoral work that Mm. sometimes people are lonely Mm. and value a cup of tea and somebody to listen to them. Mm. Mm. I remember a couple of years ago, we spoke at the same conference, and Mm. uh, thank God I spoke before you because I wouldn't have been able to follow you. But (laughs) you highlight that again, and you spoke there, if I remember correctly, about this question, the difference between hearing something and listening to Mm. someone. Mm. And I just want to pick up a little bit on that because I do think we hear a lot of stuff, Mm. but many people don't feel listened to. Yes. And in a way, that kind of negates part of our humanness to Mm. have the sense you cannot be empathetic or sympathetic to anyone if you haven't listened to them. Mm. Mm. And so this whole question of listening is a very Mm. important one. It is very important. I think there's lots of unspoken, unshared stories Mm. that people live with. And the difference is really that if I'm available to you and I'm really present to you, then I can hear you differently than if I have an agenda of wanting to fix or tell you what to do, how to make your life better because something worked for me. If we're able to learn to stay away from those those ideas that people have, but really focus on the person's story, and if we're curious, respectfully curious about what it's like for you in a particular circumstance, ask some meaningful questions, yes, reflect back, but at no time assume the role of expert. Mm. I think it makes a huge difference for people who've been unheard or unrecognized. I want to pick up there on presence. Mm. We live in a digital age where people are physically present but not necessarily present to someone else. And we're seeing mm. this more and more. And you notice this with families. For example, you visit a family and you'll notice that everybody's looking at a screen or whatever the case is. Mm. Your thoughts about that? I mean, it seems to me as well that in as important as listening is, this question of presence is one that we are grappling with in society and as human beings. Technology is changing our ability to be really present. Mm. I think I agree. And that might be why therapy And somebody to listen, to have conversation with is so important because people are finding it less and less in their primary families, in their primary relationships. And I think that's possibly one of the downfalls of westernized modern living is the withdrawal from collective living, participating in communities. People are very insular now Mm. and everything's available online, your entertainment as well as your shopping. Mm. Mm. So people... My sense is that people don't always find ways of having conversation. Hmm. One notices once again a huge difference there between developed and developing countries. Mm. That in Mm. many developing countries, this idea of the village or the people Mm. building community is still very important. But in the way that we've chosen to live, Mm. there is certainly a growing sense of isolation, of alienation. Mm. Individualism. Mm. And that has an impact on people's ability to relate to one another. It does. Even within communities where parents live a couple of kilometers away, the 
individual lives seem to be more important now than doing the visiting. When last did you have somebody pitch up on your doorstep for a cup of coffee? Mm, you know, mm, uh, mm. Those kind of things just don't happen anymore. You come from a Methodist faith background. Mm. Have you always been Methodist? I've been Methodist by choice for 26, 27 years. Mm. I grew up in a, a non-believing home. Mm-hmm. My dad was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made practicing a faith quite challenging. Mm. So I do look back and see where God's been at work in my life over that time as well. But it also then offered me an opportunity to, because I felt called to be part of a community and to practice my faith actively, an opportunity to, I don't like to use the word shop around, but kind of visit different churches with different people, get a sense of what was out there, Mm. but then definitely felt called to belong to a Methodist community. So that's been my home for about 27 years now. And how did that feed into this narrative therapy? And because clearly something happened there Mm. that got you into Mm. doing this. Mm. I think a lot of it for me started with doing Alpha Mm -hmm. 24 years ago Mm -hmm. and really having a feeling, a physical feeling that there was more Mm -hmm. to being a Christ follower than working in an office or a secular practice. Mm. So that was definitely a kind of an impetus, which started me getting involved in the pastoral care center of the church I belonged to at the time. Mm. And then I think having Courtney, our daughter, she's 25 and a half, um, diagnosed as diabetic, insulin-dependent diabetic at the age of 22 months, Mm. We had stories that needed to be told, Mm. and we had struggles. And so finding some of that in support groups, kind of a support group setting with other parents, how do we do things, what is it like? And that kind of revealed a new world to me, I guess, of the importance of people telling their stories and having space to tell their stories. So actively sought out the pastoral care center at church and started getting involved on a part-time basis And it just sort of grew from there to even change my field of study and the amount of time that I was able to give them and spend there. What were you studying before? I was doing communications and industrial psychology. So born out of your own experience, this whole journey that you've you've made in in narrative therapy. Mm. And then the invitation to meet people along the way Mm. and to just ask a question and to have people share stories outside of how's the weather today. Mm. So, yeah, it was definitely a prompting and nudging to follow that. And of course, then meeting Trevor Hudson Mm -hmm. and being exposed to the narrative therapy model that he was using at the church at the time was like, this is how it's meant to be. Mm. Jesus was a narrative therapist. Mm. He listened to stories and he asked questions and he didn't assume. And he mixed with the marginalized of the time and he challenged social injustice and discourse and Many people who perhaps have a story to tell, I mean, there'll be people that come and they say, you know, we want to talk. But other people, there's always a kind of fear factor moving into these sorts of spaces. Mm. And how does one deal with that? How does one help people who feel they've got something to tell, but there's a fear that holds them back? Mm. How, do, how does one slowly help them to get to a place that can be helpful mm. to them? Mm. I found it in my experience important to be interested. Mm in somebody's story. And from that position, some questions will come. Mm. And some of those questions might be helpful or may leave the person wanting to know a little bit more about that kind of question. So I I do think it's being interested enough in somebody else, somebody who might be really different, live differently, taking an interest in what life's like for them. Mm. 
And just giving them a space to talk about yes. it. Yes. Mm. How does one train as a narrative therapist? Because you do some training as mm. well at the Institute for Creative yes. Conversations. Yes. So we run a 10-week introductory course, which mm -hmm. is accredited with the University of Pretoria, the Contextual Ministry and the Faculty for Continuing Education. And it's very experiential. That particular course has been developed to help people in everyday life who might find themselves listening to people's stories or being touched by something that's happening in the world. So that training is primarily aimed at anybody and everybody who has an interest in stories and in wanting to find out more about others or to help in some kind of caring ministry. So we've kind of developed that and fine-tuned that over the last six years mm -hmm. and kind of have a lot of fun learning about what life might be like for you if I can understand what life's like for me. Mm. In our South African context, that's very interesting because in many ways we've got individual stories and often we focus on the individual. Mm. But we also have a collective story here in South mm. Africa and very often that collective story is seen from different lenses. Mm. And the experience of bringing people together who, for example, historically were disadvantaged under apartheid and people who benefited mm. and the ability for those people to tell those different stories mm. and to listen to one another mm. seems to be one of the only ways forward for the country. Yes, I would agree with that. And work around that at the Institute, is that kind of thing happening? Yes. So we do that in a couple of ways. Part of our training is to start to tell our own stories. Mm. So in diverse contexts, people are hearing one another's stories. Mm. We also have sort of workshops that introduce us to different ideas and ways of being, and then also have deliberate conversations with people. So it might mean sitting around a table and asking a question like, who was the most influential person in your life? Mm. For me, it was my mum. For somebody else, it might be a grandmother. Let's share some of those stories. What made them influential? What is it like to be living in South Africa now, mm. um, at this time in our living? And kind of taking the idea that we are polarized, because that's essentially what I see happening at the moment. There's a lot of polarization, which then creates exclusion. Mm. So if we are able to talk about similar experiences from different perspectives, mm. we start moving into inclusion, allowing ourselves to be touched by something in somebody else's story. Mm. Mm. And very often people it seems to me, learn most powerfully through stories. It's not mm. through theory, but it's mm. through the actual experiences mm. and the traumas and the yes. joys of other people's yes. lives. And I think that's one of the key elements that makes narrative quite successful mm. in that it believes strongly in the multi-storied lives that each of us have, whether that is within a community context or stories we tell the world about ourselves. And narrative was developed in New Zealand and Australia by Michael White and David Epstein. And the story behind that seems to be that they were finding that westernized forms of therapy were just not working with local people, with mm. local knowledge. And so needing to find a way that would invite them to be part of their own solutions mm. and not force down some Western Eurocentric idea of how things should be mm. or labeling what you are suffering from or what the problem is. It kind of creates space to talk about rather than diagnose and label. Now, I'm fascinated by something when we talk about narrative as well, because it just occurs to me, all of our lives 
are a number of narratives. Mm -hmm. There's a professional narrative, there's a personal narrative. I don't even know if I'm labeling these right, but there's an emotional narrative. Mm -hmm. And somehow all of these make up who you are. Mm. So in a way, we're also not just weaving one story, but a number of stories of our own lives mm. with other people. Yes. So I, I have narratives I tell the world about my family life and growing up. And I have narratives I tell the world about relationship and mothering. And, you know, so it, it's not a, an exclusive one story. There are many layers to many aspects to the different stories. And yes, there are points of connection. And there are stories that get forgotten mm. and can be quite meaningful if they are remembered. And stories we want to tell because we want other people to hear those stories, mm. but stories we're afraid of telling yes. for fear of what other people may think if they mm. heard that narrative mm. about my life. Yes. It's really a fascinating way of, so to speak, unpacking a human yes. life. Yes. So our term would be deconstructing, mm -hmm. deconstructing some of those narratives, some of the dominant narratives that we might be living because we think society expects it of us? Mm. What are the other narratives that perhaps don't yet have a voice that might, if heard and if are storied, could become part of a new dominant narrative, a preferred identity? Mm. Because sometimes the dominant narrative or the one that I'm striving to, to keep others happy or to keep mm. the world happy, is leaving me a very unhappy person. Mm. And I think more and more in our Western society, and certainly here in South Africa, because of a number of factors, people are discovering that aspiring to the dominant narrative is not necessarily leaving them internally feeling mm. consoled about their lives. Are you able to change that narrative? Mm. We're able to offer the conversation mm. that enables the person to decide for themselves if they want to change it or to become aware of the dominant narratives and decide to live with that. Mm. So in through questions and the reflecting back, the person might become aware of just how influenced they are, for example, by what media says they should look like mm. or who they should be in a particular role. Mm. Mm. So kind of taking the idea of the superhuman apart and discovering, allowing the person to discover who they are. Mm. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. Very often in therapy as well, sometimes people make drug interventions. or But this is really saying, in a way, I'm listening to your life. I'm helping you to reflect on your life. But ultimately, the responsibility lies with you. There's mm. nothing that's going to be a quick mm. fix except mm. the work that you're willing to do. Yes. And that's quite liberating, I think, for both parties, for the person doing the listening and asking the questions. I don't have the responsibility to fix somebody's problem-saturated story. Mm. But I can come alongside and we can discuss how it got to be there and how long it's been around and what influence it has on you. We can explore what you have within you. We call that the landscape of identity, mm -hmm. your knowledges, your beliefs, your values, your hopes, your dreams, the ideas that support who you are, and that perhaps there's something in there you can connect with should you choose to change that dominant story. Mm. What does it do to you as the therapist? listening to other people's stories? Mm. And how do you cope sometimes with these problem-saturated narratives? I think on the first part, what is it like listening? I call that holy ground mm -hmm. because I'm not going in to try and change anybody, but I can be changed by listening to your story. For some people, it's the first time they've ever told a story. I think it also broadens my own landscape of the stories out in the world. So being aware that these stories are happening and that people are living them. So that's kind of the holy ground. I get to be with you and those storytelling moments are sacred. Mm. And then, yes, supervision is 
kind of essential for the stories because oftentimes somebody else's story will touch on my story mm. or one of my stories. And I need to be aware of that so that I'm able to give up my best to listen to your story, to be present to your story. Mm. So the need for conversation for myself is vital. Also, it's a great perspective giver, mm. listening to people's stories and thinking that there might be something I'm struggling with, but suddenly it seems quite insignificant in the greater scheme of what people are living with mm. and the stories that are out there. Mm. So it can be quite a balancing factor as well, I think. Mm. Gratitude, grateful, but really, really aware of the sacred space, of, for some people, of what it takes to make that initial contact mm. and to arrive at the very first conversation. Yeah, I sometimes think people aren't aware of what it takes. Mm. Because of some of the discourse in the world around therapy and psychology and having something wrong with you. Mm. Yeah, so there's a real significant moment when that phone call is made and the person arrives for a first conversation. Mm. You highlight something there very important because often the word therapy is linked to something wrong, mm. you know, or you're a failure or you're not successful or whatever the case is. And yet it's so important for people to be able to find spaces just to process mm their lives, their experiences, their challenges. Mm. And to make that accessible to people, mm. yeah, and, and to be willing to be present. I want to ask you a little bit as well, Nikki, about you recently embarked upon a PhD, which is really building on what you're already doing. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Mm. So I think essentially it came out of, I've always had an aspiration to do this, but didn't really have time because up until the end of last year, I've had children who've been at home and at school and needed me in other ways. So with Luke finishing school last year and kind of setting foot into the big world, mm. there's a part of me that was like anticipating what people call the empty nest idea mm -hmm. and how I might spend some time. But there's also part of me that continues to be interested in, in learning more mm. and in wanting to find creative and new, perhaps, or just different ways of being with others. Mm. So what are you going to do? What is your plan for the PhD? For the PhD. So it's in family pastoral therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially what I'm going to be doing is gathering the stories of some of the war veterans from the South African border war. Wow. Mm. Looking at the role of religious ideology in that war, perhaps. Looking at the re-traumatizing narratives for a lot of soldiers who didn't have a choice but to go to the army for conscription and now are seen to be part of a an illegitimate war mm. and what that has done to their stories. Mm. Looking at some of the coping skills that people came back with after seeing and being part of things that maybe 18 and 19 year olds really shouldn't have been forced to witness. Mm. So it's the element of witnessing as well as some of the the ways that some of the veterans are now making meaning of their story, mm. what it means to go back to Angola, Namibia, to the so-called border area mm. where conflict took place. What is it like for them to go back? Is there moments of healing through having conversations with one another, having conversations in the hierarchy, in the ranks, mm. and some of the rituals that are starting to happen to make peace, mm. perhaps to move forward? from that experience. Hmm. That's fascinating. Hmm. Institute for Creative Conversations, when people come there, I mean, how do they make contact with you? How's it funded? Hmm. What do they need to do? Hmm. 
We are an NPO, mm-hmm. so we're funded on donations, on the training that we run. We also do some fundraising events. So in September, we have Ruta Lundman having conversation with us on mm-hmm. stories and the art of listening. Mm-hmm. We are on the web. We have a website, www.i4cc.co.za. Mm-hmm. We also send out a monthly newsletter or way of communicating, informing people about the workshops, the opportunities coming up. We try and be active on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, sometimes Twitter, just to kind of almost make people aware that we're there and this is some of the work that we're doing and what we're offering. So people can contact us through any of those mediums, whether it's for a conversation or for participation in something that we're offering. Mm -hmm. We are an inclusive community. Mm -hmm. We love the diversity. One of our key values is hospitality. So we really do take welcoming people seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, we have quite a wide audience. If someone wanted to come and see you, is there a set charge rate or is it what people can afford? There is a, a guideline mm-hmm. charge rate. Our team is part of the, it used to be called SARP. It's now the Council for Pastoral and Spiritual Counselors. Mm-hmm. So there is a suggested minimum rate, mm-hmm. but that shouldn't stop people from contacting us because within that value of hospitality, And generosity, too. We don't ever turn people away. Nikki, the final question is, how do you think by doing this work, you are helping to expand the horizons of hope? Mm -hmm. A lovely question, that. I think by offering intentional and creative spaces for people to have deep, meaningful conversation that hope and perhaps change or having a different frame of reference comes from that. Nicole Dixon, thank you very much for your time and for being here and for just sharing your story with us and the stories that you are listening to. Thank you very much. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za